going to obviously record because we are here. Justin Answers the Podcast. We like to fulfill our human potential. That's because I am obsessed with that physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, in all aspects of life. Now, today I have probably uh, one of the top most special guests, although I shouldn't say it because we're all VIPs, very individual persons, as we used to say it, at Disneyland. So, Tony Giglio is a Hollywood writer and director. Now, how did I meet? How did I dive into my Rolodex and find this one? Well, he hired me as an actor a long time ago when we were both young. And I played in a movie that he directed, which is a remarkable film, which, and I can tell you the only reason you haven't seen it is some studio behind the scenes shenanigans, which he might tell us that story a little bit later. He might not, that's completely up to him. Uh, but it was a remarkable, remarkable experience for me. As you know, I believe in cross-pollinating across industries and synthesizing things. So if you're watching this for business, if you're watching this for life, there will be lessons to learn for you from Tony, from his experience in the business for your business. So Tony, welcome. Thank you for joining me. I'm not only honored, but I'm grateful. And it's just a joy to reconnect with you after all these years. Thank you for having me. Uh, it was a pleasure to uh, get your responses, and uh, I'm happy to to be back seeing you. Uh, one of my favorite, one of my favorite performances in any of my uh, now seven films that I've directed. Um, so. Wow. Okay. Well, that's that's really cool. So, guys, you might want to rent or download, look up Netflix in Enemy Hands. That's the movie. See what it is available. About. It is available pretty much everywhere. The, there was a delay in the release which yes. was caused by some sketchy financiers and stuff like that. But it has gotten out there. I've even seen it as most recently, like last year, it was streaming on Amazon Prime. So uh, it's Oh, wow, out. that's cool. Yeah. I, I got my own copy, At but- uh, <laughs> in the US it was, I don't know internationally. Yeah, I'll check it out here in the UK. So if you want to see me playing Lieutenant Bauer and shout out to Joel Bauer, the mentor's mentor over there, I'm a Bauer <laughs> too, see, hey. Uh, so uh, go ahead and download that film. It is a good film. Do you know what? It's a good movie. So Tony, let's let's talk about you now a little bit. So what's been your biggest challenge in business or the business up to you and how did you overcome it? Um, I started as a production assistant. I didn't know anything. I graduated college. I had very, I didn't go to a traditional film school. So uh, I got a basic overall Bachelor of Arts degree in film and TV production, but not, nothing as in depth as an NYU or UCLA. I just always knew I wanted to be in film. So the moment I graduated, I drove cross country to move to LA. Um, that was, Beer, you know, that was uh, motivated basically. I had written a letter to a director that I really um, admired. And for some reason, he answered. It was uh, Sam Raimi. And oh, yes. so I, when I arrived in LA, I wrote him again. I faxed the letter in because you faxed back then. This was early 90s. So um, I, once again, he had just serendipitously. Um, he had just signed on to direct a movie called The Quick and the Dead. I had an interview at his office. Um, they needed a runner to run around town. Um, and they said, do you know Los Angeles? And I said, sure, I'd literally been there two weeks. I had no idea. Um, but you, that's challenge one, F figure, get the job, figure out later. So, um, you know, I had you my know, Richard Branson who said that. <laughs> you had your 
you didn't have GPS back then. So I was getting lost all the time, but you know, I worked really hard. I paid my dues. I figured, you know, that's what you did in your twenties. You, you, and I really needed to learn. I needed to learn from the ground up. Film school gave the, what I learned in a film in school was, you know, some, some theories, stuff like that, but I didn't really know how to make a film. Um, and I ended up working on The Quick and the Dead, first as a runner in the office, then I went out to set. And it was really that set experience that not only confirmed that that's what I wanted to do with my my life, but it I would say 75% of everything I learned about filmmaking came from that one experience. And that was a once in a lifetime. I mean, you had not only Sam Raimi directing, you had... Uh, the cast from, you know, you had Leonardo DiCaprio, Sharon Stone, uh, Gene Hackman, Russell Crowe, it was a who's who, and it was behind and in front. You had Dante Spinotti and all these top um, crew members working on this film, and they were all willing to share. I was 22 when I was constantly asking every question in the book, and everybody was just very sweet and, uh, and helped me. So after a few years of doing that, what you learn quickly is they don't advertise writer-director jobs you really have to seize those jobs. So the biggest challenge is how to put yourself in a position to get those jobs. Um, it's not like you work your way up. If, you, if you're in business and you start, you know, in an agency in a mailroom and then you become a junior assistant and assistant and, and then finally they promote you. Like you can literally, as Quentin Tarantino did, went from video store to director. Um, you know, it's all about the art, but, you know, in terms of some aspects, but also it's, putting yourself in those positions. So I basically taught myself to write. I, you know, there was two ways back in the 90s to kind of crack it. It was to make a short film that everybody loved and got recognition. And hopefully somebody would go, hey, we want you to direct this or make this into a feature or something like that. Or you write a script and people go, wow, I want that. And they want it so bad they hire you to direct Making a short film back in the 90s, you had to shoot it on film and it was very costly. The average short film would cost you 10, 15, $20,000 because you had to shoot on film, develop it, edit it the old fashioned way, print it, and then get it seen. Nowadays with iPhones, it's much easier, but uh, back then I was pretty poor. I was living, you know, paycheck to paycheck. And I, once again, I had no problem with it. I, every job, PA job I went on to, I felt was another degree of learning. I, and I was very fortunate. I mean, wow, uh, I worked on Terminator 3D with Jim Cameron. I worked on Heat with Michael Mann. I worked on Escape from LA with John Carpenter. All my heroes growing up, I seemed to find those sets. And, you know, whether you call it uh, luck or whether you, you know, you push your, put yourself in those positions, those are the jobs I sought. You know, I didn't want to just, I was offered, you know, once you start to get a reputation, you get calls and I, I was in a fortunate position to turn down. I never heard of that director. Oh, I've heard of Jim Cameron. I've heard of these people. I'll go work with them and learn what they, what they know. So the biggest challenge was finding the time to write when you're not making any money. Um, I was making about $500 a week, you know, at my job and you know, my rent was, you know, $750 a month. So you do the math and, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm basically breaking even every month. Uh, fortunately, movie sets, they feed you. So it wasn't a lot of money good spending on meals. But 
that was the big challenge, find the time and um, and then find, you know, you could also, I have a theory that the greatest script probably written might never get read because that person doesn't know how to get it read. You know, you hand it to somebody and it gets on a pile or as you, you know, some people know, you write stuff, you send it to somebody and no, nobody ever responds and it's really tough. So I was in a position where a friend of mine, I helped get a job um, at, on a, on a, as a PA on a movie, ended up going to work for that company. And he got in a position to be a director of development. And then he called me and we had lunch and touching base. And uh, he asked me, you know, if I had a, a script and I did, I had just finished my first script and they liked it. They didn't want to make that movie, but they hired me to write a few things for them. And that's where I met John Brister, who was one of the producers of the film we worked on together. So that started that. And then eventually we became kind of, we formed a partnership and his company wasn't allowing him to produce films. Like they, they did want to promote him and they weren't going to hire me to direct any of the films that they were making. So we said, let's go do it ourselves. And that's basically how I started my career. I forced my way in. <laughs> Yeah, but see, look, you, you said something really interesting, which is some assumptions that you're making about the corporate world and the corporate ladder and all of that. And yes, I have heard stories of people like Michael Eisner, whoever, who, uh, you know, started the mailroom and ended up in the, in the uh, C-suite. However, a lot, of, a lot of what we don't hear, a lot of the part of that story that is generally omitted from biographies is the fact that there's quite a bit of forcing your way in that is involved in those situations as well. It, you look at the United Kingdom or France, these are countries I've worked in in business. And the truth is, is that the people who get promoted are not always, it's not always just a smooth ride for everybody. There is less and less positions at the top. So there needs to be a degree of assertiveness for anybody watching. So you, you can't expect to come in. I mean, the lesson, in, if anybody's listening, one of the lessons here, of course, is take care of your friends. We ended on that note. Your friend helps you, you help your friend. We always want to be good people, take care of our friends. You never know what, what when an open door is coming. But along the way, you 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 created your own luck is what you did. And you have but to do that in your the business in, world. Yeah, forcing your way in doesn't mean being rude, doesn't mean being unprofessional, it doesn't mean being, you know, anything negative. Um, I, you know, never, this, this business, uh, in most businesses, you can't have the thin skin. You're gonna have more rejection in your life in this job. You know, I try to pitch it to people as you're getting hired for a series of temp jobs for your entire life. I mean, if you, if you really value security and job security, the entertainment industry is not for you. Um, you can, you know, you can have a hit show and then if the people who say it's in charge think it's too costly, they'll still, they'll still cancel it. You know, you, you just go on and, you know, you do your best, you do the best possible work you can. And, you know, what I, what I did it, it was just simply like I'd write a script. I never took it personal if people did, it didn't respond. You know, maybe at first, you know, it's like, why? It's great. But then as you get a little older and you write more and you go, yeah, that last script really wasn't good. And you start to learn. And as long as you, as long as you take those early experiences and you're always learning and, and you know, I'm still learning. I'm still changing the way I write. I'll read somebody else's script and I'll see, wow, they did that better. Or, you know, um, I can learn from that. Or 
stuff like that. So it's it's a constant yeah. learning experience, which which life is as well. So. Yeah, but it's interesting because a lot of our people watching will be people who are really into personal development and self-help and all of that. And in, in that in that arena, we hear the term teachable a lot. You need to be teachable. You need to have a high willingness to learn and a high willingness to accept change. And what you're saying is this, you remain teachable. You're continually learning for your entire lifetime. And that's true anywhere. If you want to be successful in any business, any life or, or whatever, if you're closed and you're just not then your degree of success is going to be extremely limited. It's funny you mentioned rejection as well. Uh, after you and I worked together, I ran through a series of three rejections, which really, really kind of did my head in, as we say here in England. One of them was, I don't know if you knew this, but I was almost in How I Met Your Mother. I had the call back and everything for that, and they went with the other guy. I was almost in The Big Bang Theory, and of course, I did callbacks as well. Didn't get the job. Now, everybody always asks me, so who did you... Who, what part were they considering you for? And there's no way to know because the sides that everybody read, and for anyone who doesn't know, sides is this piece of the script that they've sliced out that you read for an audition. Everybody read, male or female, the exact same sides for Sheldon. So were they considering me for Sheldon? I don't know, probably not, but everybody read exactly the same lines. So I thought that was interesting. Didn't get that part. And then Star Trek Nemesis was the other one. I was almost in, I had the callback, I had a walk on on Paramount. I went in there and I and uh, I left and they gave and they me part to a, to a then Hardy. unknown Tom, Tom Hardy, yeah. as you know. He, I was he gonna say, you and Tom Hardy look exactly the same. So it's Yeah, kinda... exactly, don't we? You can shave my head, bald, do the accent. I could have been Shinzon. Anyway, the, the, the funny thing is, is on my way out, um, I crossed paths uh, with his entourage with Tom Cruise, who oh, just wow. took one look at me and said, are you coming? And I freaked out. I had another audition to go to, so I hightailed it out. He was doing the screening for Mission Impossible 2, and I really should have just, ditched the audition and hung out with Tom Cruise. But I told my friend, if you're watching Dan, which you'll probably watch this later, because it's, it's, you're probably not awake yet, um, you knew the story, because he knew he knows me, he knew me then. And he was like, you idiot, why did you go with Tom Cruise? I said, I, I could, he's like, and I didn't have my security badge. And he's like, well, no one's gonna stop you if you're with Tom Cruise. I'm like, yeah, that's true, big mistake. But whatever, this is like 20 years later now. So what would you say is the accomplishment that you're most proud of so far? Professionally, um, yeah. You know, personally, clearly, I, I recently have a, a baby girl. I, of course, yeah. But we're talking about pretty amazing. Professionally, yes. Professionally, I would. I, I felt like I'd be. You know, if my family saw this and I didn't mention that first, it would be. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, knowing now what I what I know about the industry when I first moved out. I thought, man, if I'm not a top director by the time I'm 30, I might as well just call it a game. I mean, you have such a warped perspective when you're young, like of how quickly you should achieve something or the idea to put a to put a clock on anything is, is for a, an artistic field um, is, is pretty bizarre. Um, the fact that my first feature, I, I remember I just turned 27 when we were in post on that. And I thought, man, I almost just, just take too long. Like, I was really hard on myself. Um, but now looking back, I would say the fact that, you know, I directed that movie, you know, my first film, which was a kid's film. That's probably the greatest 
a professional accomplishment because it was so challenging. We had $500,000 US, we had a team of children, we had dogs, um, and, and, and I was so young, I was 26 when we were on set, and I really somehow pulled that together and you know it's a it's a team it's a it's a collaborative effort but you know you really had to sell that to everybody and at 26 i still don't know how i was able to convince all these actors and everybody and crew to pull together and we finished on time on budget the studio really liked it i mean it went on to make a lot of money i think for them not not necessarily me my my original deal was pretty bad to get the directing job but um it really proved to me that I could do anything. And I've never really, my first three jobs were ridiculously difficult. The, the second one, which was you in, uh, in Enemy Hands, that became difficult, but it, it was tough to get it going because it was a very, no one wanted to make a anti-war art film half in German language. It was very challenging and it took years to get um, uh, an actor who the, the financier respected enough to to push us through, and that was William H Macy. Um, and then that, and it became the shoot was challenging because when you're writing these scenes, you're you're not envisioning to cover all the actors inside a small tube where it's tough to move the camera and doing action. So that was a learning experience just to finish it. And then of course the financiers became very you know, not reliable as we as we yeah. moved into post. We actually went uh, bankrupt while we were in post um, and almost yeah, jeopardized. Well, and, and then Mark the Wahlberg third, didn't help. <laughs> the third film, Chaos, was the worst of, of all of them, which was the financier. The financing fell through originally before we even started um, because the, the company was getting sued and then uh, another company picked us up to save us and they ended up being well just long story short but that financier is now in jail for fraud if that puts it in perspective yeah. and you know chaos was supposed to be my my big film it had jason statham ryan Phillippe, wesley snipes before like wesley was still a major star uh, you know doing blade theatrical films at the time Jason was just starting to really skyrocket. Ryan was rock steady, and you know, uh, as a theatrical, you know, movie star, um, the budget was 25 million. I had 45 days. This was, we had a theatrical deal in place. It was supposed to be the, okay, yeah. those first two films that beat the crap out of me. Um, this is, it was all for this. Well, the financiers took my 45-day schedule. They made it 21, but they did it as we were going. So I started day one was 45 and then six days in we had a shutdown then they shut you know kept shortening it so you when you plan for a movie if they tell you you've got 40 days you schedule it you break it down you, you pad the days to blend you know to make it doable in that time if you know you have 20 you load up the days more so those early days probably could have been packed more but because they weren't so and then that film had an even greater, you know, people were suing the financiers left and right. Um, it took me months before I even saw a frame of footage. Uh, that, I almost broke me. Um, the fact that I was able to finish those three movies, especially ending with Chaos, I, I, you know, I didn't, 
I didn't know what, I basically had a little moment where I said, if it's going to be this hard, I don't know if I want to proceed. It's too hard because it, you know, you, you get invested not only as an artist, but you then suddenly I was in Vancouver on chaos. They shut down. Now, when I checked into the hotel, you put down your credit card for incidentals. If the company's bankrupt, I had been there a couple months. So they're going to look at the one credit card. I, I literally had just balancing my budgets and stuff like that. I I had had some debt that in enemy hands helped pay off, but I was entering chaos basically at zero. And I was expecting a good fee for the movie, which I never, I, I eventually got, but not at that point. So I didn't even, I couldn't even afford to check out of the hotel. And if they ever ran the credit card, they would have found like the credit limit probably wouldn't have paid for the hotel. So there are the stresses of not only making the film, but then there were the stresses of this could financially ruin me personally. So that's all the stuff that comes that they don't tell you in school or in anything like that when you start to get really into it. Um, it was able to get done. Um, I credit myself. I credit you know, my manager at the time who was also one of the producers. Um, a lot of the crew, if they had bailed on us, wouldn't have been able to finish. But because we were able to finish and get that movie in the can, I was able to get paid and, and you know, um, stave off that, that stuff. But it really led me to almost consider, yeah, that's, uh, it's too tough. But, yeah. but I said at the end of the day, I go, this is, if I can get through that, um, I can continue. So yeah, and it sounds like it was chaos. <laughs> Apropos it was, name, what it really did was I did one more independent, um, a movie called Timber Falls, which I shot in Romania right after that. And I kind of did that immediately just to get the sour taste out of, of chaos off my plate. And um, I liked that experience. It was you know very. It was it was a much it was challenging, but not you know not to the extent the money was in the bank and stuff like that. But, but after I started to insist on, uh, you learn. I started to basically say I want I want you know people talk about big bad studios. Well, at least the studio checks are clear. At least you know you know you're you know you're getting paid. You know your crew's getting paid because that was the other thing. Crew wasn't getting paid on chaos. And vendors weren't getting paid, and you're you're sitting there going. Eventually, this leads back to you as the director. You're like, because you're the person on set that they're seeing. They're not seeing these financiers down in LA yeah. pulling strings. So um, I started, I basically told my agents that if I want to get back working, you know, I want, I want that security and I'll deal with, I feel like if you can talk to a, an exec passionately about your, your take, nine times out of 10, they're going to side with you. They've got 20 other projects that they're developing. So they're hiring you to shepherd that one. They're going to throw their two cents in because that's what they get paid to do. But if you're really fighting for something, most of the time, not every time, but most of the time, they're going to say, you know what, go with what you want. You're, you're, we hired you for a reason. And that's been basically the career I've had post, um, you know, post, uh, you know, Timber Falls, like everything pretty much that I've, and you know written and directed has been somehow connected to a studio to give me that security so that helps yeah and i see the poster behind you for timber falls so there yeah. it is 
<laughs> if anybody a, wants to check that one out, you can probably Spanish one for. Oh yeah, chaos! And there's there's my yeah. U-boat working title for in enemy hands. Yeah, it got released some in some places. You know, that's the one thing with independence. Sometimes they uh, they release it. On, Timber Falls got released as wrong turn three or something in, in somewhere in South America. So. You know what's funny is I was on the phone when I was still living in California. I was still in LA at the time. So 20 years ago, I was on the phone with my cell phone company. Uh, I think it was AT&T and they had a call center and it was in the Philippines. And the guy asks me, so are you the Connor Dunn, my middle name? Are you, are you, are you the Connor Dunn from that movie? I'm like, what movie? Really? You've seen it? He's like, yeah, I've seen it. Two times in my life I got recognized because of In Enemy Hands. Two times in my life. Once in France, because it airs, and my aunt calls me every time it's on Canal Plus, because that's the channel it goes on, every time it goes on there. Although I don't get residuals, by the way, for that. I get residuals for Mad TV to this day. They send me checks here in England. But Why don't you get residuals for that one? Because that's not part of my contract. Ah, uh, because I get a, uh, I, get, I, I wasn't in any of the guilds when I did that movie, but the DGA and the WGA have, uh, they collect foreign levies for their members yeah. now, even though I wasn't then, I do collect, it does, In Enemy Hand does really well in Germany. I know, I know, it does well in France too, because my aunt watches it every time. And then she sends me a message. I saw your movie again. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, no, so my contract didn't include residuals. So I still get like seven bucks a year from Mad TV, but nothing from In Enemy Hands. So how did, how did having some kind of core strategy play into achieving these, uh, these things that you did? How did that play into it kind of? Or did you not have a strategy? Did you just wing it? I mean, no, you never wing it. I mean, the early on, um, from working as a production assistant and seeing the preparation that the directors put in, um, I started to, you know, basically figure out a, a how to how to be able to make that leap. Um, you know, Sam Raimi would storyboard every scene in the film. Um, you know, some directors didn't. Uh, Jim Cameron you know, was in control of every aspect of the set. He had a walkie, I had never seen that before. Like, he would talk directly to every crew member. Like, and I would see how, I took it all in. Like, you know, John Carpenter was just super friendly to everybody. Um, you know, Sam Raimi didn't know anyone's name, but everybody loved him because he, he was always, you know, happy. Jim Cameron yelled at everybody, but you knew it was because he was trying to get his vision. Michael Mann didn't talk to anybody except the actors in his first AD. Like, he was so focused on exactly what he's doing, but he was so relentless in his pursuit. Like, we would do 20, 30, you know, 40 takes uh, routinely. Um, the famous scene at the diner um, yeah, that with Pacino and De Niro, it started at night, it was a night call, um, worked all night, and then, you know, you'd think you see the sun coming up because there's all glass windows. So there, you can't shoot much longer. Then suddenly the tenting comes out <laughs> and you're building tents and you're tenting in and the darkness continues. And he just would go and go and go until he got what he wanted. Now, sometimes on low budget shows, you don't have that luxury. You know, you, you know, uh, on a low budget show, uh, the theory is, you know, uh, to kind of explain it like, um, a script is broken, you know, basically if you have a 90 page script, that's 90 minute movie. 
So you're, you're, you usually you schedule a certain amount of pages to shoot a day. Um, a big budget studio film, maybe they shoot a page, page and a half a day, maybe a scene or two. When you're doing a lower budget show and you're working on fewer days, you know, seven, eight, nine page days are not uncommon. So you have to limit your choices of angles of how you're going to cover the scenes. And, you know, you really, if you get to take five, you're pretty, you're pushing it if you're going to make the rest of your day. Um, you know, being a director, uh, on, every director has a, a, a you know, I'm sure J.J. Abrams wants more time and money on, on his shows. It's, it's a common thing, but you really have to prioritize. So when I go into films, most of the stuff I do is on the lower budget end. Chaos would have been was the bigger, the biggest budget film I direct. Um, I did work on second unit director as uh, on a film called Resident Evil Afterlife, and the budget was fairly high on that. Um, but you know, as the second unit director, you're being hired to execute somebody else's vision, and you know, it, it's a little bit different. So um, you know, when you go into these things, you if you know, we talked earlier about chaos about if they tell you you have 40. You plan that way. If they tell you have 20, you plan that way. That was the challenge of that film, that that kept shifting. So going into every movie now, you know, okay, you gotta give some style, you gotta give some flair, you have to, you know, do some fun stuff that you want, you know, visually to to be a signature of the film. Um, and you plan it was well, well ahead. And other, other scenes you go, I'm just gonna let two actors talk in this one do a wide shot because I, I got to make up the time that it's going to take to set up the complicated camera angle for the other stuff. So that you learn over time. Um, so that's usually the strategy. The strategy is to try to stay on budget, on time, and still get creatively what you need out of it because it is still a creative medium, but it's more, it's also a business. You know, I realize that some of the, some of the stuff I do is is product. It's it's not going to mean nearly what it means to me to other people. Um, so, but you know, I and my reputation is I'm, I'm I kind of get hired to do the really tough jobs. Um, it's hard to do action on low budget. It's if you were doing a low budget film where two people are talking in a room, there are challenges to it. But I'm usually the guy who gets hired for the two people talking in the room where zombies are pouring in and there's some kind of cgi element and then there's gunfights and then there's an explosion and the budget doesn't go up it just they seem to keep getting smaller so you have to give the audience who's now so accustomed to seeing 200 million dollar movies every you know month that get released and you're being nobody wants to come you know an audience shouldn't have, you know, it still costs them $4 to rent uh, Avengers as it is to my movie or whatever the cost is or something. So nobody wants to hear about, you know, there are great low budget films, you know, Paranormal Activity and Blair Witch. They spent nothing on those films, but they go in with the strategy. You can't try to be Avengers Endgame when you only have $50,000 to make the film. So that's a real interesting thing you bring up there because um, one of uh, one of the uh, very famous mentors that many people will be aware of who, who tune into this, um, not a Hollywood guy, his name is Mark Joyner. He basically invented the tracking pixel. You've heard of that, right? On the internet, the tracking pixel. Well, he's the inventor of that among lots of other things. 
he likes to teach his students them something called asymmetric warfare. And what that really means is kind of what you're just saying right here. You can go into something, and this is true in business, by the way. You know, this is true in, in any industry, whether you're running a cafe, a martial arts studio, a web design agency. It, it doesn't matter because I've seen all of these. Or if you're a nonprofit, um, Claire, if you're watching this, you'll, you'll attest to the fact that, you know, hey, where did our funding come from? How did we do better in the first six weeks of 2020 than we did all of 2019, despite pandemic and all that? Because if you have a strategy going into something, you can still win the war. You can still win. You can still get your product out. You can still get the job done. You can still get it done within budget without blowing your budget. How, mon how many times do people in business do that? So that's, that's a really important point you make there. So what are, I don't know, three to five skills, moves, techniques that protect against failure? Well, preparation, clearly. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can't eliminate failure. I mean, and then you have to define failure. Like, um, you know, I mean, but there are people who hate the Godfather. There are people who, you know, love Geely. It's, there's a, you know, it's, it's, yeah. Art is open for interpretation, which I've never, this is one of the reasons I've never bought into the Oscars. Like, you're not racing Rain Man versus, you know, Bugsy in a, in, a, in a race. Well, it's like the one year I was in college and it was like, they gave the Oscar to Jack Nicholson for as good as it gets. And I was like, yes, because I love that movie. And I was just at that point despising Leo and uh, Titanic. And he didn't win and he boycotted and he was upset by that because it was like Jack who beat him. And I'm like, of all the people that could beat you, it's Jack Nicholson. Come on. Exactly. So yeah, you're, you're totally right about that. And even in the new Star Wars movie, Yoda said something about, you know, something along those lines. Vader is our greatest teacher. You know, he did some Yoda-ish thing about that. So yeah, yeah totally. I, I also try, this is a weird thing to say, mm -hmm. I always try to remain very optimistic simultaneously. I plan that everything's going to go horribly wrong. So I, I, I hope for the best, but I plan for the worst. And if you do that, you know, I, I you know, it's, it's, I, so for example, you're, you're, you're setting up something to shoot and the actor's late that day and it, suddenly it starts to rain. And, you know, you, you just, as long as you prepare what can go wrong this day, how do I attack it so I still get what I need out of it? Um, and then you're gonna come up with something. And also the other real key thing, and, and this might not go everything, but so many young filmmakers feel they have to take all of the burden on themselves. And while a director is hired for their vision and everybody's following you, it's not a sign of weakness to turn to your director of photography and go, I don't know how to get what I want, help me. You know, because the more you do that, not, not only do they become more personally invested in your vision, if you hired the right person, you're going to get what you wanted. You just might not know how to get it, but because they have more experience and hopefully they have more experience and they or they have a different experience to figure out what you want. You know, you use the people around you. You know, I mean, there was one day on Chaos where I wanted a signature moment where in the movie, uh, a bank explodes and Jason uh, Statham and Ryan Phillippe are spot. I wanted them in the shot with the bank blowing up. I didn't want stunt doubles. We didn't have green screens. I wanted them, you know, it's it what I want. We were shooting another location while the second unit was kind of doing some of the action at the bank. 
it didn't look like we, we were running late at the airport because of some snafu. So the producer came to me and he's like, you're not going to get the shot you want with Jason Ryan over at the, at the you know, bank. And, you know, I was very, I was a, very disappointed. I was like, all right, whatever. And then my first AD and my DP came to me and they both basically said, listen, that's the one shot you stressed to us in prep that you wanted. This is how we get it. And we basically decided we're going to finish up. We can, we, all we needed was some inserts. We can set up a stage somewhere else. Let's get these two guys and you back over to the bank, drove across town. We used our cop for an escort because you have police sometimes to help you. And we got there in time. We set up the shot, did it safely. And it's, you know, one of the more proud moments of my career that I basically, you know, once you learn that, you know, the crew is there, hopefully the crew is there to help you. I had experiences where it's not always the case, but in that case, like you leaned on the people and they came through for you. So don't be afraid to ask for help. Yeah, I mean, that's incredibly important. Don't be afraid to ask for help in all walks of life, number one. But number two, the other thing is, as you talked about, it doesn't sound weird at all because one of the um, greatest personal development gurus of all time, I won't name him here because it's not it's not his show, it's my show, but he talks about exactly that as well. So some, some of these people with law of attraction and self-help, they think, oh, negative thinking, no, 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 there's nothing's ever going to go wrong. Well, that's Pollyanna. That's not going to help anybody. This this gentleman actually teaches positivity and all that. He teaches optimism, expecting the best, law of attraction, all of that stuff. But he also simultaneously teaches exactly what you just said. Make sure you know what your worst case scenario is and, and what your contingency plans are in case that's going to happen. Because as positive mindset absolutely influences things, we don't want to be delusional. We want to know what reality might bring us. And by confronting the worst case scenario, by being able to look at that and consider it and know what we're going to do it may never happen but if it happens then like the boy scouts will be prepared so i think that's a wonderful strategy right there so thank you for sharing that so so how has leveraging proven strategies affected your earning capacity well as i started when you're dealing with independent films and you're not members of the the union um, you're really at the mercy of what the financiers want to pay. I'll go back to, I don't really count my first film, uh, the, the family film, because you know I was 26 and I said, you know, I'm just gonna do it for, and it probably ended up doing it for like, I think I wrote, direct and produced it for like 30 grand or something. But that was a big chunk of a $500,000 budget. But that was the bare minimum I could do to, stay on a film for a year. I mean, because you're on that for a year, you shoot things. So if you think when when you sign the deal, you're like, oh, I'm getting $30,000 right now. But then you have to realize you can't work on anything else. So that's a yearly salary. So it's pretty small. Um, you know, that's below the poverty line. <laughs> so I think it's close. Anyway, especially in LA. Um, so the you know, In Enemy Hands was another one where I didn't have, I wasn't in the, the guilds. And if you don't have the guild protection, and some people can be pro or for anti-union. I, 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 you know, I definitely have my issues with some elements of the unions. But overall, the the, the, the greatest thing they've done is they 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 say you can't make less than this, and you can't you know you can make more, you can negotiate higher, but there's a minimum, and usually the minimum is pretty decent. 
um, you know, depending on what you're doing. So like in Enemy Hands, I remember I originally agreed to, I think I originally agreed to like 125,000 to write and direct. And that was a nice, good, solid, you know, amount of money. Um, just as we were about to get the green light, this is the sleazy financiers, they called up my lawyer and said, it's 75 grand for Tony, take it or leave it, we'll pull the plug tomorrow. And I was like, what What are they talking about? Like, they're just gonna cut me by 50 grand? And, and, and I was naive enough to not realize that they had already signed William H. Macy to a pay or play deal for his salary. So they weren't gonna do it. They, they were bullying me, but I was young, I was naive. I, I just believed it and I agreed. I took less. Um, and then when they went bankrupt, they even made less. So um, over the years, when I hit that point where I was like, this is too nuts, like chaos, I never knew if I was gonna get my fee at all. So my goal was to get into better financial situations and not just when you're young, you just go, let's go do it. Let's go do it. Let's work. Let's, you know, let's worry about the art, all the stuff. And that's important, but if you want to make it a career, if you want to be able to not have to take other jobs and concentrate on making the, the script the best and the movie the best, you, you have to protect yourself. It's not selfish. So, um, you know, I made a concentrated effort to pick studio jobs. All studios have deals with the unions. That put me in a, you know, X level that said, I can only make this amount of money. And it also gives you in, in the United States, uh, there isn't universal healthcare, so that gave me uh, the health plan access that all the unions have. Um, I've been building in my pension for for later on in, in retirement. Started taking care of all those things in my you know early 30s and planning that. And um, you know, and then I've done. And if you do a good job, you'll get a bonus. You'll get a raise. You'll get you know if you. I've, I'm on my sixth project with Universal. Each job, they give me a little bit more. You know, it's because they can trust. It's not just like standard, but they know I deliver. They know that I'm I'm not reckless. I'm going to deliver a script that they can they can shoot, or I'm going to direct a film that they know I'm not going to be reckless. So it's you know I I've, it's not just your credits. It's your relationships that help build your 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 worth to those people. Somebody who you know some people get you know, a job or their fee based on the success of their previous film. I'm not really in that category at the moment. My films are smaller. So I have to basically build my finances off of the fact that if you tell me the budget's four million and we're not spending a dime more, I can stay pretty much at that level. And, and then they'll see how it does. And um, if it's doing really well, then the next job you get a little bit more. So that's how, you know, it's, and it's not completely rolling over. I've, I've been told by a producer that's hired me on multiple occasions that when I was interviewing for another job, they called him for a reference. And he told them, he's like, well, listen, Tony's passionate, you know? He's not gonna just do what you say. He'll, you know, he'll, he'll fight for what he believes in. He won't go to the, you know, he won't sacrifice, he won't, he won't kill the project for it, but, you know, just know that if you hire him, he's going to fight for it. And I, I like that aspect. I mean, you don't want to just be a yes person, you know, because it's at the end of the day, it's still your name on it. 
And a lot of execs that tinker with your film in post or, or something, they don't put their names on them, you know? No. <laughs> you know the, the film I did previous to Doom, my sixth film, SWAT, and it was a very different film when we finished shooting. And they changed a lot of it in post. And it really went against, you know, what I really wanted to do. Not too much, because there's only so much you can do when you have a 21 day movie and, you know, three and a half million dollars to make it. But they changed the underlying tone. It was supposed to be a more serious film. They made it a lot lighter. They brought in much lighter music. They, they really changed what I went for. So, you know, it, that kind of stuff hurts because you're like, you, you work really hard and you're hired for your vision and, and it's changed. But at the same point, that was unfortunately one of those ones that you do as a job, you get hired to do. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it happens. Yeah, of course it does. So that's, that's really interesting. So what's, um, so real quick, we, as we wrap it up or head towards wrapping it up. So what's the, the best strategy that you ever learned from someone else ostensibly and what impact did it have on you and the business and life? Um, I don't know about strategy. I mean, I've always been pretty motivated. I mean, I went as a child, you know, I only wanted to go to the movies. My friends wanted to go to the beaches and stuff like that. And I wanted to go to the movies. My first, outside of working for my father at his liquor store growing up, every other job I ever had was, you know, entertainment related. I worked in movie theater as an usher. In college, I worked at a video store. Then I graduated college and immediately went into, you know, film production. As far as a, like a philosophy, more or less, was the moment I started realizing that not everybody has to like something. Like not everything has to be for you. Or, or like, for example, I earlier we talked about Geely and, and The Godfather. It's, don't criticize the people who don't like what you like. It's, art's not going to resonate with everybody. And that's going to help you get through inevitably you know, it's gonna it's gonna keep you in check for positive reviews, and it's gonna you know not tear you up for negative reviews. You just have to realize, like, 2001 was trashed when it came out. The Shining was trashed when it came out. Like these, you know, it it doesn't really. If you let those kind of stuff bother you, um, it's fair to take like constructive criticism, but especially in this day and age where it feels like there is a there's more of a, you get more hits for negativity. You get, you know, mm-hmm. people need to be more angry, more upset, more uh, horrible to each other for- Well, you get 110% more engagement on social media from anger than you do from positivity. Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's to me, once I kind of got through that and I started like sitting there and, you know, I used to be just like everyone else. Oh, that movie sucked. But, you know, now it's like, you know what, that movie just wasn't for me. It's fine. It's okay that, you know, it's not for you. And that made me start to enjoy movies more. It made me start to, like, because, and the, the more you go into this career, you realize how hard it is. Not just, it's, it's very rare to get a movie made. <laughs> it's near impossible. It's so hard. You, you get... You need 20 yeses to one no, and that's only if you get to the that person who actually have read the project to begin with. So it's so challenging. So anyone who gets through it, 
I can never slight a director. If I don't like a film, I'll never get, you know, I'll definitely never publicly say anything to that person. But, you know, privately, it's also, it's, man, what you went through to get it done deserves, I, I know how hard it was. Yeah. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to criticize you. It might not be for me, but it's, it's, it's still worthy of respect. So that's basically how I've been. And I think I, I try to pass that along to so many people, like in terms of, you know, let, let the stuff that you love inspire you, let the stuff that you don't like, just let it go and don't dwell on it. Like I, I'll see people like viciously attacking people who, what, when Doom came out and Doom had a very rabid fan base, um, from the video game. Yeah, I remember. Now, I was fan. I tried to make as as, as faithful an adaptation. We had limitations. We, we had a, a lower budget, um, but it was made by people who bought into it. You know, we we did everything we possibly could to stay true. You know, and when we got some movie reviews, a lot of the critical reviews were were fairly good. A lot of the fan base reviews were very negative and attacking. And I actually had read on Twitter, one of the guys from, I think, Joe Blow or one of those, you know, websites, he had, he had said in his year-end rap, like, you'd never believe the, the most hate email he got from people was his positive review of Doom, of all the films that came out in 2019. And it's like, why are you spending so much time on attacking a film that you didn't like? Like, just let it go. Okay, it wasn't what you wanted to move on. And, you know, I've been guilty of it when I was young too, but, um, you know, I, 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 you obviously want everyone to like what you do, but it's not going to happen. It's just not, you're never going to please everybody. So is that the single best strategy you're oh, best known for? The one, well, and that strategy, the, the, the one thing that you can control is how much work you put into it. And, you know, if, as long as you're doing everything you possibly can, the hardest you can, um, with the with the availability, um, with in, did you do your homework? Did you do your research? Did you put everything you possibly can into it? That's what you can control. You can control your effort, but you can't control somebody else's feelings about. It. Yeah. So just to let you know, the national president of Roundtable, Sri Lanka. T.A. Tarindu Amaraseke, he says, I totally love the Death Race series, especially Death Race 1. Ah. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, thank you, T.A. That's an awesome thing. So uh, I, I, I didn't write Death Race 1. I wrote 2, 3, and 4. Death Race 1 oh, was, right. uh, was Paul Anderson uh, wrote and directed. He's a friend of mine right. now. Um, and, you know, that's a good, like, we talked about, like, uh, earlier of how do you uh, advance and stuff. Uh, I after chaos, which it screened. I don't know where it screened. Wherever it screened, the head of Constantine Film LA saw it. Um, a gentleman named Robert Coulter, and he loved it. I got a call to come in and meet with him in a general. And I grew up loving horror movies. That's why I wrote originally to Sam Raimi. So I'm going to tell you a story about how I didn't get a job and how it benefited me. <laughs> so I go in, we talk, and I, you know, he's like, well, what do you want to do next? And I said, well, if you were going to do another Resident Evil, I would love to be considered. And he goes, well, they had just finished the second one, or it came out. 
and he said, well, we're good doing a third one. It's being written, the script should be ready like next week. I'd love to send it to you. So I get, a week later, I get sent the script, I read it. It was the one set in Vegas, Extinction. And I was all excited. So I, I you know, we meet again. Um, and I met with him and Jeremy Bolt, who uh, produces all the films. Um, and it went really well, they loved my ideas. So I then get called back to meet with, you know, actors get called back, directors get called back. So I get called back to meet with Paul Anderson, who's the kind of the creative force. He's a, a, he directed the first Resident Evil, he's directed several more, directed Alien vs. Predator, Event Horizon. Um, and he was a little more critical, and he really grilled me on storylines. And we went through them all, and we really had a great meeting. Um, I then get called back, and I'm told they want to prepare, like me to prepare, like a, they want me to storyboard out a sequence. So they really wanted to get the visuals done. I do all this stuff. They love it. I did this, uh, the scene where the zombie crows attack the um, bus as it's going into Vegas. Um, everything's going great. Really getting along with these people. I had four or five callbacks at this point. And then I'm told, are they going to set me up with a meeting with the head of screen gems? And I'm like, okay, this is the final guy I have to pass. The day before that meeting happened, I get a call. My people get a call. Like, you get a call when it's good news. Your people get a call when it's bad news. So I get a call from my agent saying uh, the meeting was postponed or canceled, and they've hired another guy. They wanted someone with more visual effects experience. And that was Russell McCain, uh, who had more visual experience. He directed The Shadow and Highlander. It was tough. It's like, okay, I, I was fairly unknown even though I was up and coming, but um, Russell had a career. So anyway, a few years go by and I didn't hear from those guys. And I get a call out of the blue from Jeremy Bolt. And he said, hey, you know, where Universal wants to make a lower budget sequel to Paul's Death Race. And I think you'd be great to write and direct it. What do you think? And I said, sounds great. So I go in and I meet with, with Jeremy and Paul and we're, they're prepping me for the meeting with Universal. So at this stage, all they had was a story idea that Paul had came up with and I was gonna write the script based on his story. So I spent a week with Paul collaborating, flushing out the story really, and now I'm gonna go in and pitch to Universal. And during that week, like we really remembered how a lot of, even though we have different styles of filmmaking, he's, uh, in a different league and stuff like that, we, we, we still had the same passion and love. And he had said something really sweet. He said, uh, you know, we should have hired you. Like, I feel bad we didn't. You were our choice, the studio wanted someone else. And he goes, the reason I'm coming back is I, I you know, Resident Evil had meant so much to him. And then he then asked me, I'm jumping ahead. I get, I go, go in, I do the universal meeting. I get the job. I'm writing the Death Race script, Death Race 2. I get a call from Paul and Jeremy, and they want me to go direct second unit on Resident Evil 4. And they and basically Paul says, no one will ever tell you you'll have you'll, you won't have enough visual effects experience again, because every shot you're gonna do is CGI and action and all this stuff. So the long story short is, even though I didn't get that job, it led to the Resident Evil job, it led to the Death Race series, which I wrote three of them, which has been a wonderful 
uh, it built my relationship with Universal. Um, I've written Doom for Universal uh, and directed it for them. So from that one, not getting a job, but I went in, I worked, I, I prepped, I did all the work I was asked to do. It's not always going to hit. It's not going to land. You're not going to get that job, but it, if you if you stick to it and you know you you never know how this kind of industry works but that's why you just the only thing you can control is your effort and you, yeah. if you do that you'll put yourself in these lucky break situations if you yeah. just sit there and wait for something or if you think oh, i didn't get it go 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 screw those guys or whatnot and you're just you're you're, you're losing out on opportunities totally so so 2020 what's what's the number one thing for 2020 that you're implementing oh my god so the biggest misconception for uh right now with is like hollywood's all stopped hollywood's completely not stopped um, yeah i thought it they was have, they have been uh er, most writers are working because everybody's developing it's the only thing the studios can do right now i've actually gotten i've done more work over the last um seven months it's been my most productive seven months i've done i wrote one independent script uh for all all assignments um i did a job for constantine another callback uh robert culzer's company um you know and i'm doing a new project for universal as well so um and i'm attached to direct two of them uh when and if we kind of i'm just kind of just starting the universal project right now i finished the other two but it's uh uh it's been very it's been very busy um writing wise now as we kind of come out of virus time and they start shooting all the the projects we'll see how quickly i you know productions get up and going but um i was offered something to direct that shoots in vancouver in september uh it's something i haven't written so i hope that comes together it's actually a kind of a perfect post-virus film it's like four people in the woods mostly outdoors <laughs> uh, um, so it's very minimal cast can be minimal crew lots of fresh air um that could be something interesting but you know until there's like paperwork and you see like your plane yeah. trip is upset you, you you keep it all in check but uh yeah, socially distanced shoot <laughs> yeah um you know but uh that's kind of it like i'm i really like the projects that i do i've i've been fortunate enough like the the constantine project jeremy bolts involved who i worked with before so these are people who i i know that know me that you know if i tell them it's going to be an extra week they they know not to panic um universal same thing it's you know it's it's all people that you've worked with before and you have a a shorthand with and and that's what a lot of people don't get like hollywood isn't a cruel machine of of whatnot it's it's all relationship based and you know it's they'll deal with you if you're a sometimes they'll deal with you if you're a jerk if you're being very you know lucrative for them but you know the moment you're not lucrative and you're still a jerk you're, you're not going to work <laughs> so you know work hard and and no one respects somebody who just lays down completely but you know go in and do your best um work hard show them that you're willing to some of the best 
scenes have turned from notes that I've received that I didn't like, but you make it work. You know, um, Jeremy Bolt was actually, when I was writing Death Race, I was on the set of uh, Resident Evil and we got the first set of notes from Universal um, and they wanted to change one of the major things I liked. And I said to Jeremy, how, how do I fight? How do I push back? And he said, you don't. And I go, what do you mean you don't? And he said, first draft is for you. Second draft is for them. They, they are paying you. They have the right to see their, that scene the way they want it to be seen. And he goes, if it still doesn't work, if you've done your best and it still doesn't work, we'll go back and we'll fight. But you can't say no yet. Let them see their, you know, it's, it's different if I'm in control of it and I'm paying for it. But, you know, that's where you're surfing that line between artist and, you know, uh, your job and your, if you take money, you do owe the other person a, a voice. And, you know, it's, it's, you hope that you're in sync and you hope that if all things break down, they'll, they'll side with you. But in, in that case, I went and I rewrote the scene the way they wanted to, and it turned out great. It turned out really well. So you have to be, and that really opened my eyes to be more open to bad notes. Hmm, it, I call really that the best one turned out good because, yeah. you know, it's like turning tragedy into triumph almost. So, so th- yeah. I mean, that's all my that's all my questions really. By the way, TA says Death Race Two is really good too, Tony, and even Slot <laughs> Under Siege. Oh, <laughs> so thank you, you. You've got a fan over there in Sri Lanka, and he's a VIP. He's a very importantly, like I said, he's national president of the Round Table over there, and he's a he's oh, right. a award-winning public speaker and an entrepreneur, and he does all kinds of stuff. Young man, a good friend of mine, close personal friend. Well, and I wanna, yeah, it. I don't want to. You know, I was. A little critical of SWAT. I mean, I, I loved making the film. I love the actors, um, you know, and for the most part, it, it is the cut that, that, that I, you know, handed into them. Um, I just had a little different, I wanted it to be a little more training day edgy and they went with more of a USA network light. And, you know, it's just one of the, you know, go back to what I just said, you, it's their money. <laughs> it's their product. They hired you to execute it, and you know I've done my, I did my job, and you know you, I'm not Christopher Nolan, I'm not Steven Spielberg, I'm not Kubrick. I, I don't get that final cut, and that's fine. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, the Death Race films really, really were turned out well for Universal. I didn't direct any of them, but I wrote the last three, and. They were just so much fun to write because it was literally, if you know the films, Justin, they are, it's like, just turn off your PC side of your brain, do everything. I've, I've seen two of <laughs> them. Like, like take I've seen out two your, of them. Yeah, take out your wildest inhibitions and write it. Mm. And it was like, you know, you could do anything in the films. And because that's yeah, crazy. Probably an anarchy society, a, yep. a over the top uh, society. So, um, you know, that was inspired by the Roger Corman, you know, film from the 70s. So, you know, you, you had, you know, so much creative license to do things. And um, as a writer, I'm, I'm in, in my normal life, I'm pretty calm and. You know, I try to crack jokes. When I'm writing, I'm much more maniacal, sinister, dark. You know, and that's the 
the Gemini in me, I I mean, I wonder which is the real you. <laughs> so, if uh, so, so where where can people learn more or find out more about you? Is, uh, do you have a website, IMDb? What's the best place for people who want to, you know, follow fan or whatever with Tony I'm on, Giglio? I'm on Twitter uh, at Tony Gig, um, and I'll usually keep it very, uh, you know, my thoughts on some films I like, uh, information about upcoming films, occasionally a sports reference. Um, I don't get too involved in too much, uh, you know, political or, or stuff like that. I try to keep it for entertainment purposes only. Um, I have a website, TonyGilio.com, and there is is, a, is my director reel to kind of see some of the films I've worked on. Um, and there's also a bio there that kind of talks about, you know, how I started and the path I took to get. It's you know, I get a lot of emails about advice on how to. And it's so challenging. Nobody could follow the path I did. Write a letter to Sam Raimi, have him respond to you, move out just as he signs on to do a job, go work with him for two years, and then just happen to work on it. How many uh, Jim Cameron production, how many movies does Jim Cameron make? You know, yeah. so, you know the path, it, and, and I wouldn't even know, like when I moved out to LA, everybody was, um, all the, like so much production was here. Now there's hardly any production here. You know, I would tell people if you want set experience, move to Georgia. You know, move to uh, you know New Orleans, where they're always working on sets and stuff. You know, in in Los Angeles, it's mostly TV work. There are very few you know features shot here. You know, there's still a a, a, a lot of the development is done here, but you know those those are. You know, it's, it's tough to, you can't just land and get a, into a writer's room on a TV show or, or something like that. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah, well, because my, uh, my old, uh, my friends, Charlie Paterni and his wife, they, Nancy, they moved out to Georgia as well to, to work, you know, on developing and growing the movie business out there. Because he's pretty, uh, he's, he's, he's been around since the 40s and 30s. So, you know, he's been around long, long time doing mostly second unit. He directed a lot of like Starsky and Hutch and the Dukes of Hazard. He did a lot of stunt driving and stunt coordinating. So he's very, very established in the DGA as well as various uh, portions of the industry, not writing, not like you. And um, so, so yeah, but they've, they've actually moved, moved to Georgia really because the, the industry is a lot more, I guess, flourishing there for now. And you so know, I think that's pretty cool. Vancouver has a ton, but it's tough for Americans, like, you know, because the reason the Vancouver's, you know, flourishing is they hire the Canadians and people go up there. And um, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's in Vancouver, like, they have so much work. Well, not right now, but um, yeah. they usually when things are normal, they, they have so much work. When we were doing SWAT there, we were struggling to find locations because they were all booked. Uh, in LA, you okay. could have anything you want. Anything you know, there's nothing here, um, and it's really sad. You used to I used to drive down the street, and you would see these all these signs. And I got two jobs just literally following one of those signs one day, getting to the base camp, handing my resume to one of the ads. And even if they can't hire you that day, there's always those days that they have 500 extras and they need some extra hands, and they're going. You know, somebody's not available, and they'll grab the resume and. You know, and, and they call you. And that's how I ended up on Heat. I mean, I didn't know anybody involved with it. I drove down, handed in, didn't hear from them like a few weeks. 
And they said, well, can you come in for a couple days? We have a big, you know, extra day. It was one of the restaurant scenes where they had like a thousand people. Um, I ended up like working months on that show because I went there, I did a good job. They said, oh, we'll need you tomorrow. And then need you tomorrow. And it was, a, it was, became a running joke where like they were at the end of the day, they just were like, did we tell you we need you tomorrow? Like just stuff like that. So it was always about putting yourself it's still to this day, it's putting yourself in the position to succeed. Um, yeah, putting yourself, being in the right place at the right time, luck has a lot to do with that. Um, taking massive and immediate action and having depth of vision. That's what Bill Gates said when, he, when Larry King interviewed him anyway. So, Tony, because um, this is it for me. So do you have anything you'd like to care, you'd like to say, you'd like to ask? Um, otherwise, all I have to do is say thank you for, for this interview. Um, I've taken some notes because um, when I uh, post sort of a watch party and all that, there's a, probably a lot more real valuable stuff in here than you think. You could uh, potentially consider writing a personal development book because <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in there. I, I took notes. I took notes. So it's oh, really, really good and helpful. So well, thank you so much for that. Well, I wanted to reiterate the story that we told off camera, which was um, you know, when we were doing it in any hands, the subject matter was pretty, uh, I found like it could be, con it could be considered controversial. Um, the story centers around an, you know, World War II American submarine uh, gets sunk. Uh, the German, a German submarine picks up the survivors. Simultaneously, the German captain is having a crisis of conscience about the war. And even though he was only supposed to, by Hitler law, keep the captain alive and let the others die, he, survived, he saved everybody. And what that did was that created this friction within the boat of the German soldiers, which was the, always the much more interesting story. The American side of the story we'd, uh, we had seen before, they want to survive. The German side where you basically had a, a crew divided, um, that they were all allegiant to, the, to the, their captain, but at the same point, half of them were like, the captain is committing treason right here, and you were one of those people. So entering, going in back and talking about preparation and stuff, um, I wanted it to be very authentic to the German people. So we went through a very, it was a German company that was financing, it was a splendid Los Angeles, uh, splendid pictures, which I think they're still around in Germany, but I don't, they're definitely not in LA anymore. So I said, I, I only want real Germans. And we had hired Till Schweiger and Thomas Kretschmann as the two main Germans, but everyone else I wanted, you know, I wanted from Germany too. So we started this uh, search for actors. Uh, they had not only they had to speak German, they had to be from Germany. And I actually had a guy in the room from the company who was my spotter to tell me where accents were from. So only people who like were authentic German got jobs. Uh, you fooled the the the, 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 the 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 spotter so much so that even Till Schweiger, who's a fairly large star in Europe and Germany. I mean, people know him in America, but not nearly as as well uh, as, as his homeland. Uh, he was so impressed with you, he came up to me and he was like, that kid is a tremendous actor. And he goes, I know you only wanted to hire real Germans, but I'm glad you did, you hired him. And I go, what do you mean? He's not German. Uh, so you had fooled me. You originally had fooled him, you filled our spotter and you gave a, a such a strong, uh, wonderful performance that um, 
it resonated with everybody and it really helped define the that uh, that movie for me so i really thank you for you know becoming you know coming into that film and it really showed me that i could tackle if i get i could sell that project to 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 people i can i can sell a lot more but it was because of people like you that brought their talents and um, and i really appreciated that performance and uh, and you reaching out to me and all the kind words you said to me over the years so it's nice well i really appreciate that that really makes a difference to me because as you know as a lot of people know I, i i no longer really work in the movie business or live in la i still have my sad card though so if anybody wants to hire me i'd say yes just for the record but Good. it was uh, was not an easy decision to to move on to move into my other passion which is of course business and strategy and helping people succeed on that level um, but uh, as you know the movie business is tough you said earlier you got to have a thick skin at that time about 20 years ago did not have a very thick skin and so I I'll never forget the one um, casting director he's dead now karma caught up with him he called me into his office after I you know submitted you know persistently doing like what you did with directing and he sat me down his ugly dog was over there and he pointed at a picture on his wall and he said to me do you look like that and it was just the most snide condescending comment telling me i was ugly and not going to make it in in acting because i didn't look like that hot guy on the wall or whatever and that happened to me more than once actually because i went in to see a manager the other day through a connection of mine um, and uh, this is after we worked together even and he and he pointed to the wall and he says is your name and this actor doesn't work anymore so he says is, do you have this name but at the time he was a young hot up-and-coming actor and i was like no and those two experiences really got to me they really did get to me at my at a core self-esteem level and it was just um you know so after that and then the almost was in almost was in almost was in yeah at that point i kind of called it quits listen you 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 went out you 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 were able to do it you at least took that risk and to put yourself out there and you have to look back at those moments and and realize that you know the the greater the greater regret would have been not trying it out well, absolutely and, and 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 i'm proud of my successes that i achieved in there i don't consider it a failure have, i consider um, it a success you have to wrap it up i have a toddler yelling for me <laughs> oh my god toddler is way more important than anything else so thank you very much tony um i really appreciate it Go take care of your toddler. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We're going to stop the live stream, stop the recording, and we'll see you soon, Tony. Thank you. Bye.